arts, look at their poetry, look at the way they dress even. And then you can kind of say, okay, I see what this goes. And then even the foods. Because we are not necessarily engaged in um, very critical thinking when it comes to culture. Why is music so telling of a culture? That is so telling. If I, if I were to ask you right now, what did the itsy bitsy spatter do? You would say, anybody? Yeah, see? And what did Mary have? Yeah, well, and what color was it? Yeah, right? And I'm pretty sure you have not sang that song for at least a decade, at least. And you still remember it. But nobody sat you down and said, okay, there was this girl named Mary, right? And then here's, here's a book about Mary. And then she had a lamb. A lamb is actually a baby sheep. Um, nobody ever taught you that. But do you remember what she had? Do you remember what color it was? And there's even principles that are communicated in music. That's because our humanity is linked, closely knitted with music, with musical inventions and musical performance. I mean, consider the, those nursery rhymes, right? Even when babies are in the womb, what is, I don't know if you have younger siblings or younger cousins or whatever, you've seen people that are pregnant, what do they do? What, what, is, what is it recommended to do? Listen to classical music so that it can, it can get them to start thinking. It, it's so intricately knitted with our existence as humanity. And that's more of a practical approach to it if you, if you were to ask me. But even biblically, did you know, and this was fascinating when I found out this week, the first recorded human words in the Bible was actually a song. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 23. Adam falls asleep. God takes the bone from his side, makes Eve, and then he presents it to him. That's the first time that man ever spoke. And he says, then the man said, this one finally is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called a woman because this one was taken out of man. It doesn't sound like a song because we read it in the Bible. But if you notice in your Bible, it's almost, especially if you have one of the, the, the printed out ones, it's, it's, it's almost put as, a, as poetry, right? That's a song. That's the first hit song ever. Top one of one. First recorded human word was a song. It's that intricately woven into our nature. And the scriptures are littered with how music is an important feature in the daily lives of, of people. Music is so important that you're playing it right now, whoever that was. Right? People were out there, like, treading um, wine, and they were singing. They were getting water, they were singing. They're farming, they were singing. When they sit down, they were singing. Everywhere there's music. 
I mean, it's become to the point where, like, I have an extension to my ear called an AirPod, right? It's, it's now become a part of my ear. I, I intentionally take it out to where, like, sometimes I don't even have it in my ear, and I feel like I do, so I go like this, and I don't even have it because I just, it's just become, and then it's in, my, it's in our ears because music is that intricately woven with our nature. Now, I'm not here to convince you because you already know that music is that important. But when it comes to music, what does scripture tell us about music in terms of worship? In our worship series, this is where our focus is. How does our worship culture formed through musical worship? Now, I'm not saying that the Bible says everything about every genre of music that you're interested in. That's not what I'm getting at. We're not concerned about that. We're more concerned about implementing principles of Scripture of a specific culture, which is God's people, or even copy the best Bible-inspired cultures when it comes to how we use music in our worship. Because in our time, pop culture, contemporary forms, uh, that, that's, that's what, right? That's, that's what's driving us. One commentator says this, pop con contemporary forms or distinctive ethnic forms of particular cultures are employed in order to reach an audience that likes a particular style. That's how worship is happening in the churches. We're focused on a specific group of people and a specific subculture that is, that is um, really popular now. And then we focus our worship style to meet that and then say, okay, this is how we're going to worship God. And this is really dangerous. If we, if we are listening, it turns out uh, because it turns corporate worship, congregational worship into one of the two things. It makes it very consumer driven because it's about what's popular now and it's about what people like now. We are worried more about what do I prefer or what do people like to hear versus what does God want to hear? So it becomes a, almost a consumer attitude. And people that are worshiping in the churches will start inevitably viewing themselves as consumers of worship. Not worshipers themselves, but you are just a consumer of worship. And as Americans, we're prone to do that, right? I mean, you go to the store. They don't have what you want. Or they don't have the price at a sale that you want. You're going to leave, go to another store that has what you want. So when it comes to worship, and if we're really honest, that's what we end up doing, right? They don't, they don't play the music that you like. Or they don't 
play the 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 music that you uh, you you enjoy. Uh, they don't preach the way that you don't. Uh, you're like, I'm, I'm going to go to the next church. But if, if worship is meeting with God, which it is, by the way, corporate worship, what we're doing right now is we're having a time set aside. And not God needs to be um, invited into a place and we need to have an official time. God is omnipresent. He's everywhere all the time. So wherever you are, God is, right? But in terms of corporate worship, in terms of congregational worship, what we're doing is we're saying we're going to set a day aside, we're going to um, come together, and we're going to have a meeting with God. And if we are going to do that based on Scripture, as Scripture reveals it, it's very simple, it's very spiritual, it's God-centered, it's reverent, joyful, evangelistic, delightful, an active and passive means of expression of worship. If that's what we're doing, and that is what we are trying to do, we need to consider what the Bible says about musical worship. Because we know that music plays an important role in how God's people worship Him. And we see this by the rich vocabulary that it is used. What is the largest book in the Bible? Psalms. I mean, if that's not giving us a hint of how important music or musical worship is to God, that he inspires the largest content of his, his word, his revelation. It's music. And by the way, music is not just contained just in Psalms. Moses sang in Exodus. His sister Deborah sang. I mean, Joshua sings. Samuel sings. I mean, people are just breaking out into songs throughout the scripture. Jesus quotes multiple psalms, which means even Jesus sang. So music is important in how we worship God. And we know that by the richness of its vocabulary. People had songs of praise. People had songs of thanksgiving. People had songs of lament when they were going through things. They made music with various instruments as part of their worship. So I'm not here trying to critic or trying to tell you this is the kind of biblical worship that you must do, and this is how we should sing, and these are the instruments that we... It's, it's a variety of it. Variety of genres, a variety of situations. The point is not style or genre. The point that I want us to consider this morning is the content. What is music and worship? What is its content biblically? 
for that. Let's look at perhaps the greatest musical worshiper in Scripture, David. And I want us to, to take three considerations. And, and, and in order to do that, I want us to, to really set the context. And I want you to, to turn with me to First Chronicles chapter 13. First Chronicles chapter 13. And then we're going to look at First Chronicles chapter 15 right after that. So the context of the context is that David has just now become king in Israel, and, he, and God has given him victory around, uh, around the nations, and he's settling in. He just got uh, Jerusalem. He conquers Jerusalem, and he calls that, that's, that's, the, that's the capital city of Israel, and now he builds a house for himself in Jerusalem, and this happens. Then, verse 1, David consulted with the captains, of the thousands and the hundreds, even with every leader. Notice. Verse 2, David said to the assembly, which is the people that he gathered, if it seems good to you, and if it's from the Lord, let us send everywhere to our kinsmen who remain in all the land, Verse 3, and let us bring back the ark of God, of, of our God to us. So you see this, right? So David goes, pulls all his generals, all his wise people, you know, and he's like, if you think it's, it's the right thing, if you, if you like, we can go and get the ark of the covenant and bring it to us. Consider verse 4, look down with me. And all the assembly said that they would do so. For the thing was right in the eyes of all the people. So David assembles the people and he sends for the Ark of the Covenant. And then look at verse 7. They carried the Ark of God on a new cart from the house of Abinadab and Uzzah and Ahio drove the cart. David and all Israel were celebrating before God with all their might, even with songs, with lyres and harps and tambourines and cymbals and with trumpets. You see, there's music worship taking, taking place. I mean, you're reading it, and you're like, okay, nothing is wrong. Verse 9, when they came to the threshing floor, Shidon, Uzzah put out his hand to hold the ark because the oxen nearly upset it. I mean, it's on a cart. The oxen kind of stumbled. They're about to fall. So the ark of the covenant is about to fall off the ark. Like, no, and Uzzah stretches his arm out to hold it. Look at what it says next, verse 10. The anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, so he struck him down because he put out his hand to the ark. 
what? Plot twist there, isn't it? I mean, it was about to fall, but he was just doing what he, like, I mean, that's almost like a, a human reaction. If something's about to fall, your instinct is, hey, hold it back so it doesn't fall. And then something as important of the Ark of the Covenant, I mean, you don't want that to touch the ground. So Uzzah seems to be doing something noble, but God gets angry at him and he kills him on the spot. So it's almost incomprehensible. David doesn't even understand it because in verse 11, look at what it says. Then David became angry because the Lord's outburst against Uzzah. And he called the place praise Uzzah to this day. Then verse 12, David was afraid of God that day saying, how can I bring the ark, of, the ark of God home to me? So you see David going from angry to afraid. And then he sends it to the house of Obed-Edom, and then God blesses the house of Obed-Edom, and then we have chapter 14 in between telling us uh, that God blesses David with children I use that word blessing very uh, loosely. And then David hears that God was blessing the house of Edom, uh, over Edom. And then chapter 15, verse 1. Now David built houses for himself in the city of David, and he prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched a tent for it. Notice how... The contrast of how uh, chapter 13, verse 1 starts and how chapter 15, verse 1 starts. I want to set the context clearly. And David said, no one is to carry the ark of God but the Levites. So he didn't go to people and say, hey, y'all want to do this real quick? Is it, does it, do you like, would you like to do this? But what David is doing, first he prepares a place for the ark of God in a tent, same way that God has commanded for him to be put in, or for it to be put in. And then he says, no one is to carry the ark of God but the Levites. Not Aminadab and Uzzah and Ahel we don't know anything about, not, not some people. I mean, we know Uzzah is actually like one of, one of the people that... So. He says, okay, for the Lord chose them to carry the ark of God and minister to him forever. That's his reasoning. So then David assembles, verse 3, all of Israel. And then verse 4, David gathered together the sons of Aaron and the Levites. Then he assigns them, verse 12, and he said to them, You are the heads of the fathers of the house of the Levites. So consecrate yourself, both you and your relatives. Make yourselves holy. Make sure that you are holy before the eyes of God. Just go wash and make sure that you're, you're not doing the things that normal people do because this is what you have been called to do. Verse 13, because you did not carry it the first 
time, the Lord our God made an outburst on us. You see why God killed Uzzah, right? Now we see the reason. We don't have to create it. Because how was the ark supposed to be carried according to the law of Moses? It was supposed to be carried on a pole. You're not supposed to put it on a cart. But a cart is a newer invention. It's even more practical to put it on a cart because you can move alongside. You don't have to get yourself tired. I mean, it makes sense. It's innovative. Like, why would you want to work hard when you can work smart? That was the mindset. And David tells him, no, you didn't carry it. So the Lord made an outburst on us. Because, for, we did not seek him according to the ordinances. So, verse 15, the sons of Levites carried the ark of God on their shoulders with the poles thereon, as Moses has commanded according to the word of the Lord. So now they're transporting the Ark of the Covenant the way God has commanded it from his word, according to the word of God. Then David spoke to the chiefs of the Levites to appoint their relatives, singers with instruments of music, harps, lyres, loud-sounding cymbals to raise sounds of joy. He even establishes a whole choir, praise team, music ministry. And then you, ha you have the list of the choir members there. It's more like an orchestra. From verses 17 through 24. And in verse 25, so it was David with the elders of Israel, the captains over the thousands. This is the last thing that, this is the last time, remember, chapter 13 started with the captains of Israel and everything. Now they're like at the bottom of the list. The elders of Israel, the captains over thousands, who went to bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from the house of God, from the house of Obed-Edom with joy, because God was helping the Levites who were carrying the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. And they sacrificed seven bulls and seven rams, and then sounds of music and dancing. I mean, David, you guys know that famous story. David was dancing, so this is why we should dance when we worship. Uh, that's not normative, by the way. That's just, that's just a one-off in Scripture that, that we see. And we don't know what kind of dance he did. So if you're going to want to dance in church, I mean, you got to do it the way that David did, not the way that you think dance is today, right? That's another topic for another day. I, I get sidetracked easily. Bear with me. So they go into music worship. But this time, God receives that music worship because they did it according to the Word of God. So why did I want to set this context, the really long context? Because look at the second consideration that I want us to, 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 to go through this morning. David was formed. His idea of music worship, his idea was worship, I believe, was formed in this moment. He went from being mad at God to fearing God to obeying God. You see the transformation of David's worship and the culture that he is starting to establish when it comes to music worship based on what God did 
and based on what God revealed to him. You must do things the way that I have written in my word. So with that, I want us to consider the first two Psalms, not, their, not in their entirety. So flip with me to, turn with me to Psalm chapter 1, and then Psalm chapter 2, which is right after Psalm chapter 1. So you don't have to go anywhere. I want you to see this from God's word. I want you to consider this from God's own word. And many theologians consider these two psalms as the gateway to the rest of it. There's 150 psalms in the Psalter, in the, in the, in the Bible, right? And the first two chapters introduce the rest of, one, the, rest of the 148. So you think of it as like the, the gateway or double doors. So chapter 1. You read chapter 1, and then it opens one door. And then you read chapter 2, it opens the second door. And then you walk in, and you, you're right in how you should worship God in music. Consider how chapter 1 starts. Blessed is the man. It talks about the blessed man and his character traits. What is this blessed man? Well, he doesn't walk in, in the counsel of the wicked. He doesn't stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Okay, these are the things that he does not do. But what is the meat and potato of that? What, what exactly is God trying to communicate here? His delight, the blessed man, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he, medit he meditates. And this is an inference, or uh, this is referring to God's own word. God's own word, his revealed word in scripture, is a central theme of chapter 1 in the Psalms. That's what we see. David understood this, as we saw in the context, right? He did it not according to the law of God, and he got somebody killed. Won't be the last time, unfortunately. And then he does it according to the word of God. Then he sees the blessing of God and how God receives that and, 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 and the delight and the joy that he feels even. So the central aspect, uh, like the, the first thing that we're met with, worship God according to his word. The blessed man is the one that does things according to God's word. The blessed man that sings in worship is the one who sings and worships according to God's own word. That's the first door that's open. Second door, chapter 2. Why are the nations in uproar and the peoples devising vain things? Kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against his anointed, saying, by the way, that word anointed, his anointed, referring to Christ. Let us tear their fetters apart 
and cast away their course from us. So you see this, he, he's, he's describing this war between man and God. Really, when man wants to war against God, who, do he, who does he attack? He attacks his anointed one. So Christ is blasphemed and everything else. So he's painting this vivid picture, and then he closes out. For our consideration today and for the sake of time, let's look at verse 11. Worship Yahweh with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that He not become angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath may be soon kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in Him. So even the second chapter ends by describing how blessed are all who take refuge in Him, in the Son. In the one by paying homage to the sun, by kissing the ring. Kiss the sun. Some translations would have it. Not necessarily like it's it's about like you know how you, you kiss the ring and you come in the presence of a, a king or royalty. This is so the second chapter. In, in, in the Psalms, is telling of Christ. It's Christ-centered. So you open that first gate, it's sing according to the Word of God. The content of your music should be, that's what it's telling us, should be according to God's own revealed Word in Scripture. And then you go to open the second one that tells you, do it in a way that magnifies and honors and pays homage to his son. And then you walk in. That's what you see. I mean, I could have picked anywhere. I could have literally just closed my eyes and just pointed to one, and I could have pulled the next consideration, which is the illustration of this very thing. How David plays this out. By the way, just, just as a, a, a general knowledge, not every single psalm was written by David. Not all 150 psalms were written by David. Some David wrote, some other people wrote, and they're compiled, and his name is attached to it because he was the greatest psalmist to, to know. Even his son's so, uh, songs are in there. The sons of so Solomon are in there as well. And you see the songs of the sons of Korah. You know, you have different authors, uh, songwriters in there. But it's all compiled in a way that is so telling of these two truths. You walk into this blessed gateway. You're blessed if you're going to sing according to God's word. And you're blessed if you're going to sing in a way that honors Christ. That's what we see. Music worship is supposed to be scriptural, 
and Christ-centered at its heart. How do you know that we are singing the right things? Is it scriptural? Does it tell you scriptural truth? And does it honor and pay homage to Christ? How much of Christ is being revealed to your mind and to your heart in the song? How much biblical truth are you receiving from the song lyrics that we're, you're singing? Because this is what we see in this blessed gateway. And then let, let me illustrate that from the Psalms. So let's take um, real quickly Psalm 33. Like I said, I could have I could have picked anywhere. I was I was kind of like the people, you know, you, you walk into a grocery store and you're there to get, I don't know, peanut butter. And you go to the peanut butter aisle, and you're like, what do I get? First of all, do I get creamy or crunchy? Creamy all day. Or the powder. Now they even have the powder. Now what do I get? Jif, Peter Pan, Walmart brand or Giant brand, whatever brand it is, the knockoff brand because it's like $2 cheaper. What do I get? There's so many options. And then like you just, you just kind of just pick one, right? That's essentially what I did. I could have picked any, any one of them and you would see this truth, which is scriptural truth being communicated and also... Christ being exalted. Let's consider Psalm 33 together. Look, look down with me. Sing for joy in the Lord, O you righteous ones. Praise is becoming to the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre and sing praises to Him with the harp and ten strings. I don't know how many. I think it has seven, right? The guitar over here. Whatever instrument they were playing. So with instruments, so we're talking about music worship here. Why? Verse 4, for the word of the Lord is upright. What is it communicating to us? That God's word, that word of Yahweh, is upright and is true. And all his works is done in faithfulness. So as you're singing, by the way, this word sang to a tune. Like we're reading it out as, as if it's, it's kind of like a, an essay. But these were, this were actual songs that were sang in, in Hebrew. Like people gathered together and, and they would sing these out with, with harmony and melody. And they would use the instruments that were prescribed to sing these out everywhere they met together in the synagogues even. What is this communicating? It's telling us about the Word of God. It's telling us about His work. It's telling us about His faithfulness. He loves the righteousness and He loves righteousness and justice. And the earth is full of the loving kindness of the Lord. It's telling us about His loving kindness, His mercy, His grace. Where are we? What are we considering as we're singing this? Are we considering where the next meal is going to come from? Do you think they're considering what other person is thinking about them or what their face looks like when they worship? Is that some? They're looking upwards to heaven. They're reflecting on the goodness of God and their love and kindness. And they're looking at, they're learning, they're teaching their souls that God's love and righteousness and justice to his people. 
Verse 6, by the word of the Lord, by the word of Yahweh, the heavens were made. And you go back. So now we're going back to Genesis chapter 1 as we're, as we're singing this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And God said, oh, wow, this is how the word of God is what makes the heavens. And by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deep in the storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. You see what it's communicating. Like we, we just went from Genesis to Exodus and, and then went to Joshua and now we have to fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him for he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it, it stood fast. The Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations. Wow, that's Psalm 2. He frustrates the plans of all the peoples. The counsel of Yahweh stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation is promises that have been given. It's like you're just reflecting upon who God is as you're singing these lyrics. Blessed is the nation whose God is Yahweh, the people who he has chosen for his own inheritance. Yahweh looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of men from his dwelling place. He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them. He who understands all their works. The king is not saved by his mighty army. A warrior is not delivered by, his, by great strength. Now we're talking about salvation. How does salvation come? A horse is a false hope for victory doesn't come by our own thing nor does it deliver nor does it deliver by its great strength behold the eye of the lord the eye of yahweh is on those who fear him on those who hope for his love and kindness his love and kindness his grace is what delivers them verse 19 to deliver their souls from death and to keep them alive in famine. How is your soul delivered? Except for, is it saved by, uh, is it delivered by your own works? Or by, by heaping up all these things and these horses? We might not get what, uh, we're not warriors. We don't, is, is that what saves us? Fighting against sin in and, our, in and of ourselves? Or is it by reflecting on His love and kindness and His grace? How was His grace displayed? Our souls wait for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our hearts rejoices in Him because we trust in His holy name. Let your love and kindness, O Yahweh, be upon us according as we have hoped in you. I mean, this is communicating. It's pointing us right to Christ. It's pointing us back to His Word, and it's pointing us forward to Christ. It's all the two things that, that we saw in Psalm 1 and 2. So why talk about our music culture? 
why I talk about that? Because based on what we saw, based on these three considerations, we must avoid the temptation to fall into our default state. Our default state is we want, what, we want to hear what we like. We want to hear what is popular. We want to present something based on pragmatic ideologies, what seems to work or what people like. We want to default to our personal taste and we want to default to what the world gives. The reason for this, these three considerations is we must avoid to fall into the temptation of our default state. When we think about music in our congregational worship, we need to let scripture inform our thinking about it. We can't let culture inform us. We can't let radio stations inform us. Our culture of worship through music needs to emphasize a submission to a sovereign. It needs to emphasize a pain of homage before the divine God in response to his gracious revelation in his word. That's what it needs to emphasize. It needs to emphasize his word as he revealed it. It needs to emphasize how we submit under his divine rule through Christ Jesus. Those are the two emphases that we need to, to look at. Look at the lyrics of whatever songs that we're singing. Congregationally, or even here. How much of God's truth is revealed in it? Is it emphasized or is it kind of alluded to? Right? Is it something that you kind of just, yeah, I can see how that is. Or is it actually at the core of the song lyrics, is that something that's in there? How much of it is telling you to come to Christ and submit your life to Christ and, and encourage you to continue and pursue Christ-likeness? How much of the lyrics is doing that? Again, is that the emphasis of it? Because that's the emphasis of what, what we just saw. It's not just alluded to it. David is not... I mean, there, there are psalms where he talks about, I'm in great distress, but immediately he, he talks about sadness, talks about being depressed, talks about being happy. I mean, all human emotions are, are touched in the psalms. All circumstances that you and I go through every day are, are discussed in the psalms as well. So I'm not saying those things are not important. That's not what God's word says. But those things are seen in light of what is the emphasis, God's word in Christ. needs to emphasize our submission to his will through his word and needs to emphasize the centrality of Christ, his life, his death, 
his resurrection, his ascension, and his imminent return. Is that emphasized in the lyrics of the songs we sing? In other words, the songs that we sing need to be rich in content. I've heard the expression, most contemporary songs are 7-Eleven songs. There are seven words repeated 11 times. Over and over and over again, put to great music. By the way, there is such a thing as great music. Or emotionally manipulative music, because that's what music does. Like if, if I were to ask, I don't know where Sam went, but if I were to ask Sam to come up and play some keys and he can put y'all to sleep or he can get y'all like, yo, let's go, I'm ready, based on the, the tone that, that, that he's playing on the keys. And people have criticized contemporary music. I'm not saying contemporary music is bad. Don't hear me that say that because... At some point, even the classics and the old hymns were contemporary in their own time. So it doesn't have to be like 200 years old for something to be biblical. There are biblical songs that are being written and sang in churches today. But my point is, the content needs to be rich. Not like seven words repeated 11 times, or 11 words repeated seven times, however you want to look at it, right? I mean... Just shallow in its approach, human-centered in its approach. That, those are things that we're, we're trying to avoid. If it's just going to emotionally arouse you and not show you the greatness and the awesomeness and the blessedness of God's word and your meditation of it, and if it's not going to show you who Christ is and what he's done for you, and if it's not leading you to that, Maybe it's shallow enough. I mean, maybe it's not deep enough. It's, it's just shallow. So the songs that we sing need to be rich in content, but they need to be varied in style, right? Style is, is important. It's just as important. It could be upbeat, the opposite of upbeat. I'm not musically talented, as you can tell, as you know already, right? And most importantly, it needs to reflect. And this is a, an application point that I want to challenge all of us in. The music that we sing needs to reflect a link between the, the lyrics that we sing and our lives. It, are the lyrics that we sing linked with, or are, are, are they in tune all pun intended, by the way, are they in tune with the way that we live? Is it reflecting, or am I just singing some words that I'm looking at on the screen that I don't believe? And worship music, if it's going to shape our worship culture, because people are going to walk into our church, and they're going to see what kind of culture this church has. What, what, is their, what is their culture? Oh, let, let, let's look at how 
what they sing and how they sing it. That's going to be the first thing. Well, second thing maybe. Because how you dress speaks of the culture as well. Right? If you were to walk into a church and every single person at that church is wearing a suit and a tie and the women, not the women, but um, hopefully not. <laughs> um, and the women are wearing like dressy dresses and then they have, that, that communicates about, that communicates something. I'm not saying good or bad. It communicates something about the culture of that church. So when you come into a church and everybody is eclectically dressed, that communicates about the culture. Not good or bad in and of itself. Then the next thing is it's going to tell you about the culture is going to be their music. If all they're going to sing is 15, uh, 15 and 16th century hymns, it's going to communicate about what their worship culture is like. Again, not good or bad. If they're, all they're singing, and there, there are churches and denominations, actually, they say, you know what? Just to be on the safe side, we're just going to sing the Psalms. Because like, we know where that came from. Like nobody wrote anything down, and nobody can, can again, not good or bad in and of itself. If that's what you hear, people singing, and then you're going to say, oh, it's going to tell you something about the culture of the church. And it's going to tell you something about their lives, even. What kind of lifestyle these people live. Because the music that we sing to worship God needs to reflect the link between the music and our lives that are in tune with God's will. Because at the end of the day, you are what you eat. Whatever you consume is whatever comes out. Let me stop here. I've ran over time exceedingly more than I needed to. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your gift of music to us. Thank you for a means by which we can understand and own and make ourselves the truth of your word in a very simple way, in a very enjoyable way through music. So we thank you for giving us this gift of music, and we want to give it back as an expression of our awe to you and as an expression of worship towards you and to your son. So Lord, help us be biblical in the way that we sing, in the way that we make music or listen to it. Help us be Christ-honoring and Christ-centered and Christ-like in all our worship through music. Lord, we can't do that on our own because we're susceptible to 
the pressures of the world and our default position of our flesh. So we ask your spirit to apply this truth that you've taught us this morning to each of our lives according to your riches of your grace and according to the needs and of our hearts. May your spirit apply this truth to us and, when we, and may we walk in obedience to your will and worship you in spirit and in truth. We ask these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.